It was Theodore Roosevelt who said, people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. You've probably heard that. It sounds kind of like a little uh, kind of corny and quaint saying, and yet, don't you think there's some truth to it? There's some truth to it. it. It's often applied to pastors in this sense. The church, in other words, will be more likely to hear you, to hear what you have to say, if they know that you love them. And it's true with our relationships as well, isn't it? You probably, you're probably more likely to listen and give an ear to those you know care deeply about you than someone who doesn't. Well, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13 that you can have all knowledge, but if you don't have love, then it means absolutely nothing, right? This has huge implications for us and our relationships with one another and our relationships with outsiders. Huge implications. But for now, I want us to focus in on Paul and his relationship to the Corinthians. Because he knows that if the Corinthians are going to hear him, if they're going to hear his, his correction to them, if he's going to hear the harsh words that he has to say to them, they need to feel his love for him as well. So in this passage, he reminds them of his relationship to them. Look at our passage with me. 1 Corinthians four fourteen to 21. I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. That is why I sent you. Uh, Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ, as I teach them everywhere in every church. Some are arrogant as though I were not coming to you, but I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills. And I will find out, not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod? Or with love in a spirit of gentleness. Paul, we've seen, is frustrated with the Corinthians. In many ways, they've turned away from what Paul has taught them in the gospel into, into these uh, things that were celebrated in the, in the culture. They were prizing prestige. They, they weren't prizing the cross. They were prizing uh, getting ahead in the world. Instead of seeking unity, they sought what would improve their own well-being. And their own status. So in the passage we looked at last week, Paul gave them a sharp and really sarcastic rebuke because of their motives and their pursuits. But he doesn't want to lose them. He doesn't want to lose their their affection. He doesn't want to lose their hearing. He doesn't want them to think he's just shaming them. He wants them to know that his corrections come from a, a sincere concern for them. The reason his language is so strong in correcting them, it's because his love is so strong for them. He's like a father to them. He is a spiritual father to them. And this is what we need in the church. We need spiritual fathers who will nourish us and guide us into Christ and into the ways of Christ. So I want us to see, along with the Corinthians, Paul's fatherly care for the Corinthians. And to do so, we'll consider this passage under four main headings, four actions of a spiritual father. Uh, a spiritual father cares or loves. Two, a spiritual father warns. Three, a spiritual father provides an example. And four, a spiritual father disciplines. 
So hearing, hearing those headings, you might feel disappointed. Like maybe this, well, this doesn't apply to me because I'm not, I'm not a spiritual father. Um, this, I'm not a leader in the church. But I'm sure you won't leave thinking that way. In fact, here at the front of this message, let me show you how you can be thinking about these things and how they apply to you. First, these, things, uh, these are things Christian leaders and pastors ought to be aiming for, uh, patterning our lives after Paul. But second, these are things churches should be looking for in leaders. We've seen that throughout the last couple of chapters. Uh, and so as we add leaders, elders, and deacons, these are things you should be looking for. And third, these are things what believers themselves should be striving for in their own lives as, as you seek to disciple others. These, this can provide a model for you in, in discipling one another. These things apply to you personally in an indirect way as you think about your brothers and sisters in the faith, your mothers and fathers in the faith, your sons and daughters in the faith. So notice first that a spiritual father cares. He cares for the children in the faith. Notice Paul's view of the Corinthians in verses 14 and 15. He considers them as my beloved children. He's not just their teacher, he's their spiritual father. And notice the difference between him and the other teachers that they have. He describes them as tutors or guides. Your version might say guardians. But he, Paul, is their father. So these guardians would be slaves who would teach children throughout their childhood up until they were fully mature. In fact, they would have tight control over their lives, snapping the whip if they get out of line anywhere. Now, Paul's saying, not saying there's no value here. These, these teachers are teaching, are, are leading, are guiding in Christ. They're doing well insofar as their teaching points to Christ. But there's a difference between a guardian and a father. There's a difference in the relationship. And what makes the difference is Paul's fatherly care for the Corinthians. Well, what makes him their father rather than any of the other teachers that they have? Well, we see that in verse 15. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. So Paul preached the gospel to the Corinthians and they believed through his preaching. And so because of that, there was a special relationship. Paul was in the delivery room when the Corinthians were spiritually born into the family of God. And this has a couple of implications for him. First, it means they should recognize Paul as a special... Paul has a special kind of affection for them as their spiritual father. There's a special sort of affection between a person and the one he or she leads to Christ. And we know it's not the person who's doing it. It's the Holy Spirit through the preaching of the gospel. But God uses people as means. And there's something special about that relationship. Just think about your own uh, life. Do you have special affections for the one who led you to Christ? Special thoughts about them? There's something different about that relationship. And even if you've grown apart, even if you've noticed uh, maybe some difference in theology that, that you now have from them. There's a sort of special bond that you have because they are the ones through whom you believe the gospel. So as the Corinthians hear Paul's correction here, they should know his special care for them. But second, it means they should hear his correction in a special way and heed it and listen to it. Since they were born again through his preaching, since he was their spiritual father, he ought to have a greater influence over them than those who are simply guardians or teachers. They ought to be especially eager to listen to his correction. Now consider a few implications of this for us. 
First, from this we see that pastors and elders must have a genuine care for the flock of God. It's not enough for pastors to simply be instructors, pastors and elders to be instructors in the things of God, instructors of the Bible. A pastor must have a genuine love for each of the sheep, and if he doesn't, then he won't he won't worry if he harms them or shames them or, any, or leads them astray. But if he cares for them as a father cares for his children, then he will be eager to do them the most spiritual good that he can. And at this point, I would like to uh, brag on one of our members. I know he doesn't want me to do this, but I can't help it. It's such a good illustration of this, this fatherly care uh, in Tracy's uh, Hebrew class. I'm always... Tripped up. Do I call you Dr. McKenzie or do I call you Tracy? In Tracy's Hebrew class this semester, uh, he he did something in class that illustrates this point really well. We're going through uh, homework one day in the assignment, and he asked for a volunteer to translate the sentence from Hebrew, and nobody says a word. And I personally, I'm avoiding eye contact. I'm like looking away from him so he doesn't call on me. But he noticed, or he had the sense that something was up, just... Just in general, something seemed to be wrong. So he stopped and he asked if anybody had any prayer requests. And one guy speaks up about a difficult situation in his family life. Another person speaks up and says her friend tried to commit suicide recently. Uh, Another guy speaks up and says they're adopting a child and the situation has just really been weighing on them. And then he stopped and prayed for each one of us in the class. It was such a, a tender and uh, it was such an appropriate thing to do. It was a, a fatherly, a pastoral thing to do. He was exhibiting not the marks of simply a teacher, but of a father. He was displaying love for his class. He, he could have just plowed through. I'm sure many would have. I might would have been tempted to do, to do that. Just plow through and let's get through the material. But you could sense a genuine care for his students in that moment. And this is the kind of love pastors must have for the flock. This is the kind of care we must have for one another. It's not just for pastors. This is the kind of care we must have for one another. Each of us as Christians ought to be challenged in this because unfortunately in our culture, many people view the church as simply an event to attend. And we may not have noticed how this has seeped into our own thinking or attitude toward the church. They want there to be good programs, good music, good teaching. And and I'm not saying I want to have bad uh, teaching or music or programs. But what about this idea that the church is a family? Family intimacy must characterize our relationships in the church. It's a recurring theme, image throughout Scripture, isn't it? We are conditioned to think about family in a certain way, aren't we? We guard our family time. Speaking of those we live with, we guard our family time like Fort Knox. We want to guard that. We, we need that. We recognize the importance of that. But are we willing to see our church family in that sense as well? Yes, we are a spiritual family. But when did the word spiritual come to mean less than? Well, then what does it mean that we are a family? Well, who is it? Think about what a family does. Who is it that shows up at the hospital when something bad happens? Who shows up at funerals and parties or to watch the game? Who gets their hands dirty in dealing with unexpected problems you face in your life? 
Who knows all the, the dirty details of your lives? Isn't it your family? And in your family, you, you probably have people who have different uh, political ideas and challenges. Well, in a family, you're stuck with them, right? And we must aspire to this, this sort of love for one another in the church, this sort of attitude toward one another in the church. We have to aim for this in our relationships, especially in the cultural climate in which we find ourselves. And it will take time. It will be challenging But this is who we are in Christ. We are the family of God. Our spiritual family relationships with one another are grounded in our relationship with God. So God is our Father because of Christ. Once we were God's enemies, now we are seated together around His table. God is our Father because of Christ. He has adopted us into His family. On the cross, the Son, Jesus, was abandoned, forsaken by the Father, so that we could be welcomed in. The Son endured the wrath of the Father that we might endure His favor as sons and daughters. And by faith, we become, truly become, sons and daughters of God, and therefore we are Truly, brothers and sisters, don't hear spiritual family as something less than family. This is what caused Paul to care for the Corinthians in the way that he did. He was their spiritual father, and he cared for them as such. But notice another action of Paul as a spiritual father. He warns them. A spiritual father warns. Verse 14, I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you. As my beloved children, Paul had written some hard things. He wasn't being easy on them. He wasn't just letting them slide by in their wrong thinking, their wrong attitudes, their wrong actions. But it's not because he wants to shame them. It's not because he wants them to wallow in guilt. He wants to warn them. And he wants to warn them because he cares for them. What does a warning imply except danger? There's danger ahead. So your toddler is running toward the road. You shout a warning. Stop. Stop. Do not go into the road. Get out of the road. A car is coming. This is a warning, right? And you might frighten them and you might make them cry because you shouted at them. But did you do it to shame them? You warned them, not because you wanted to shame them to make them sad. You warned them because you love them. You care for them. You want what's best for them. And so children, take take heed of this. This is a side note, but but when your parents warn you, be sure to listen to them. You know they love you. You know they care for you. Though the warning might feel harsh at the moment or wrong, like you think they're totally wrong about what they're saying, know that their warning springs from a heart of genuine love for you, for your well-being. And so it turns out it's right and loving to warn people. It is a loving thing to warn people to say, repent of your sins. Repent. Turn away from your sins. The kingdom of God is coming and he will hold you account for everything that you've said, for everything that you've done. Turn away from your sins to escape the coming judgment. Turn to Christ. He's the only one who can save you from hell. These are loving things to say. Well, Paul warns the Corinthians. As his beloved children, it feels harsh, but it's a loving thing that he is doing. If they continue on their way, they're headed for ruin. There's danger ahead. And this is one of the duties of pastors and elders as well. 
If they are to be faithful servants of Christ, they must express their care for God's people by sometimes warning them, by giving correction when needed. If pastors never warn or correct, then they are not doing their jobs. So you're looking for leaders who have the courage to confront and the gentleness to do so in a spirit of love. We don't think so, but it's actually good for you if others warn you and correct you. So here's a a very practical application for you. Make it easy for others, including your elders, to give you gentle words of correction. We usually make it difficult. We make it so hard for others to correct us because they know we're going to respond in defensiveness. No, that's not me. I didn't do that. I'm not wrong in this. We make it so difficult for others to speak a word of warning or correction. But put yourself in a position to welcome correction. Open yourself up to that. Invite examination. At first it feels really uncomfortable. But as you, the more you do so, as you do so in a spirit of humility, it will get easier and easier and it will be for your good. And then when correction does come, respond with appreciation, knowing your brother or sister's love for you, your pastor's love for you. Now, another application is this. When you see your brother or sister straying from the truth in his beliefs or behavior, you ought to be courageous enough and loving enough to give a word of correction. The Bible tells us we have this responsibility to one another. But it's not like your grouchy relative who always has some criticism for you, who's always looking for something wrong that you're doing in your manners or your behavior or your speech. Who's, not, who's always searching for some fault that you have and is all too eager to point it out. That's more like shaming, isn't it? That's not loving. But this is like a loving friend, a friend you know cares for you. One who doesn't really criticize that much coming to you about some sin or error. So here's a good rule of thumb when it comes to a correction in the body of Christ. Be very slow to give a word of correction to a brother or sister in Christ. If you haven't already showered them over time with words of affirmation and encouragement. Be slow to correct if you haven't, always, haven't already nurtured a relationship of positive and affirming words. Because then it just rings hollow. They, they won't know for your care for them in that. So positively, this is an encouragement to you to regularly speak words of encouragement. Regularly build those relationships of affirmation and building up. So that we know our love for one another. And then when correction comes, we'll know it's in the context of love. So the spiritual father cares and he warns. But look at the third action of a spiritual father. He provides the example. Verse 16. I urge you then, be imitators of me. That's why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. In light of Paul's relationship to the Corinthians, he urges them To follow his example, to imitate him. Like children follow in the footsteps of their father, so the Corinthians should follow in the footsteps of Paul. He says, this is why I sent Timothy to you, to remind you of my ways in Christ. The pattern of my life in Christ, the way that I live in relationships to one another and in relationship to God. This is what he does in all the churches. This is nothing different. 
He's not teaching one thing to one church and then another thing to another. Rather, his teachings and the patterns of his life were well known to all the churches. Follow this example. See, Paul recognizes that imitation is a big part of discipleship. It's not enough for a spiritual father or teacher simply to give information to broaden one's understanding. We must also teach people to live in a certain way, to obey the teachings of Jesus. That's what Jesus says in, in the Great Commission, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded. And one of the ways we do this, perhaps one of the biggest ways we do this, is by example. So the Baptist preacher, often called the Prince of Preachers, Charles Spurgeon, he knew the importance uh, and power of setting an example. In fact, as a good uh, of a preacher as he was, he knew that it would all be worthless if his life didn't in some measure match his teaching. And so he is well known for diligently caring for his wife as she suffered from illness for a very long time. Spurgeon says, a man's life is always more forcible than his speech. This is Spurgeon saying this. A man's life is always more forcible than his speech. When men take stock of him, they reckon his deeds as dollars and his words as pennies. If his life and doctrine disagree, the mass of onlookers accept his practice and reject his preaching. Consider the power of example in your own life. Whether you like it or not, don't, maybe you, you notice some sayings or quirks that you've picked up from some of your friends or from your parents. You catch yourself in mid-sentence thinking, I sound just like my mother. The power of example, the, the power. We don't, we don't even recognize how powerful it is. And so pray for your leaders in this way. Pray that we would imitate Christ and set an example of faithfulness in life, in love, in speech, in faith, and in purity. And not only this, for you, consider this as you seek to make disciples. This is, this is a task that you have, the task of seeking to, to build one another in Christ. This is what it means to be disciple makers. As you seek to do your part in making disciples, work hard to provide this sort of godly example for others to follow. Don't simply seek to teach others or to grow in your own understanding. Seek to live for the glory of God. When Martin Luther died, it's reported that the pastor gave a brief but powerful eulogy, simply saying, what we preach, he lived. What would it be like to live like that? What if people didn't care as much about how much you knew in life, but how well you lived? Now, I'm not talking about salvation by works here. We're not talking about legalism. We're talking about desiring to live a life pleasing to the one who saved you by his grace for his glory so that others might see his glory as well. The power of imitation. Notice the last action of spiritual fathers, which Paul exhibited Spiritual father cares, he warns, he provides the example, but finally he disciplines. Verse 19, some are arrogant as though I were not coming to you, but I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills. And I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love and a spirit of gentleness? Now, we could also probably say that a spiritual father defends, because there is this aspect of Paul defending the flock against these false teachers. 
These false teachers are saying, oh, Paul, he's not coming back. He's abandoned you. Forget about him. And listen to what we say instead. This is how false teachers work. They sneak in and plant their own ideas while the leader is away. So Paul says, you just wait. I will come soon if the Lord wills. He knew, regardless of his own desires, God's will would ultimately be done. But he says, I will come, and when I do, we'll find out about these arrogant people. He says, the kingdom of God consists not in talk, but in power. Now remember the context. He's saying that the kingdom of God isn't in talk or eloquence or supposed wisdom as the world defines it. The kingdom of God consists in power. What does he mean by power? The powerful proclamation of the cross of Christ. This is true power, Paul says. This is where real power is, and their arrogance shows they do not know this power of God. But this last question shows that they too have some responsibility for these false teachers who had come and had a hearing among them. It's their choice, Paul says. Do you want me to come with in discipline or come in gentleness? It's up to you how, how I come to you. How, how you respond will determine whether I come to you with discipline or with gentleness. Will they repent and heed Paul's corrections or will they keep going their current path? It sounds harsh, doesn't it? But this too is a part of the responsibility of a spiritual father. As harsh as it sounds, discipline is a part of the church's responsibility to its members. And just as warning comes from love, so does genuine biblical discipline. I read a story told by Tim Brister about a man who was saved in 1988. He became a member of Grace Baptist Church in Florida, where Tim Brister was on staff, where Tom Askell is uh, the pastor there still. And after a few years, after he was saved, Steve fell into some serious uh, sin. And after going through the appropriate measures of church discipline, they removed him from their membership. Uh, Tim says, for the next 14 years, Steve spent his life in rampant immorality. At one point in his life, Steve said he spent an entire month in seclusion drinking alcohol because he just wanted to die alone in his misery. But in the midst of that, in the midst of that deep despair, he found an old Bible. And he was reminded of what Pastor Tom told him years ago about reading the Gospel of John. And so he took it up and he read. And for the next six months, he prayed and he read and he prayed and he read and he repented of his sins. And he emailed Pastor Tom. He didn't know if anyone would welcome him back. But if anyone would, he knew it would be Tom and Grace Baptist Church because of their discipline in love to him. He knew how much they loved him, and he finally saw that it was their love for him that led them to remove him all those years before. And he was welcomed back into into fellowship after those many years of turning away from Christ. Well, the book of James in the New Testament tells us, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Is this not a loving thing? Now, friends, let us aspire to these things as brothers and sisters. Let us aspire to care for one another, to warn one another, to set an example 
for one another, and when necessary to help correct one another that we might not fall into discipline. But also let us recognize these things, these aspects, these actions in our Heavenly Father. He is our Father and we are His sons and daughters through faith in Christ. And doesn't our Heavenly Father love and care for us like no other possibly could? Didn't He demonstrate His love for us by sending His only Son to die on the cross for our sins and to give us life and forgiveness? Hasn't He demonstrated His love and care for us in giving His Spirit and indwelling with us? Hasn't He shown His love for us in a multitude of ways every single day in the ways He provides for us? Our lives are a testament Every day, every hour of God's care for us. He loves you in Christ. He loves you more than you could ever imagine. And like any good father, he warns us. Now, it's not like the cartoons where Zeus is striking people down with lightning bolts. But like a good father who is looking out for the well-being of his children, he warns us and disciplines us in love. And God himself came down in the person of the Son and modeled for us the perfect example, living a perfect life of obedience, living for the sake of others, for the down and out, for the oppressed, for the outcast, laying down his life for his enemies, serving their needs rather than his own, sacrificing his life for ours. You see, our ultimate joy is not that we can be a good spiritual father to others. Not that we can be a good spiritual mother to others. Our ultimate hope is not that we can model these things as we ought to. Our ultimate salvation is not and will not be due to us being good spiritual fathers or mothers or brothers and sisters. It is rather that God has been a good father to us and He always will be. That He has provided everything needed for our spiritual health and well-being and salvation. And that Jesus Christ has been a good brother to us, giving His life that we might be welcomed into the family and into the kingdom of God. Have you recognized this? In the midst of the turmoil of our nation, in the midst of your own suffering and trials, in the midst of your own frustrations, have you recognized the goodness of your heavenly Father who is in Christ Jesus? He loves you like no other. It's all because of Christ. Let's pray together.